Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. I'd like to send a huge thanks to our friends at Sambanova Systems for their support of the podcast and their sponsorship of today's episode. Developing and deploying state-of-the-art recommendation and language services for a better customer experience can be complex, expensive, and beyond the reach of many retail organizations. Until now. Dataflow as a service from Sambanova augments the AI expertise of retailers of all sizes. By providing a comprehensive platform, services, and models, Dataflow as a service enables retailers to develop and deploy state-of-the-art AI solutions without the time and expense of building complex AI architectures and hiring teams of machine learning experts. To learn more about how you can leverage Sambanova's next-generation AI for a superior customer experience before your competitors do, visit sambanova.ai. And now, on to the show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Errol Kuhlmeister. Errol is head of AI Foundation at H&M Group. Errol, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. I'd love to have you start us off by sharing a bit about your journey. How did you come to work in AI? Yeah, thank you so much. My journey really started about 15 years ago. I was still in school studying finance. I got the opportunity to join one of the largest banks here in the, the Nordic region of Europe. So I joined Nordea Bank uh, basically as a fraud analyst in the beginning. And keep in mind, this was 15 years ago. Uh, yeah. We weren't into deep tech uh, back then. Basically, I was set uh, at a position where they said, can you help us fix the fraud? So at, immediately, I was exposed to real-time problems, trying to, in real-time, work with the credit card companies to stop it. Uh, in the past, it was just rule-based, given that I had a finance background studying math at the time. I started doing statistical analysis improving the results significantly. Back then, my love for data and machine learning and algorithms were born. So basically, I just took it from there. I uh, then, of course, graduated, went on to be a part of building up the fraud unit in the bank. did that for a a few years when I went on to actually anti-money laundering. So I was a part of building up the first detection systems uh, in the bank as well, which was really interesting. I did that for about three years and algorithms, screening, I I couldn't get enough of it. I had my first child and my second child during that period when I realized I need some more exposure to data problems. I felt like uh, this field is moving so fast. So I got the opportunity within the bank to have an open role, so to say. Was it the children that gave you the insight that you needed more exposure to data problems? Definitely. Uh, here in Sweden, we, we are very luxurious. We get a lot of free time. We get children. We get about uh-huh. a year off. <laughs> I didn't take all the time, but it makes you think a little bit about what should I focus on. Okay. Uh, I realized I wanted to go broader. Uh, broader yeah. risk wasn't enough for me. So at that time, I had the opportunity to start playing around with Hadoop installations, uh, Vanilla. Of course, this was uh, early days still. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity to integrate SaaS platform with Hadoop distributed computing, early days of Spark, and I just was hooked. So I deep-dived into the technical aspect of data science, and I I just couldn't get enough. 
I, I really love this field and I have a strong passion for it. After a year or so in that relatively free role, I got a phone call uh, and it was from a headhunter working out of London. And they were recruiting for lead data scientist role for Vodafone Group. So basically the, the second largest uh, cell phone provider in the world. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is a great opportunity. So I decided to take my kids and, and wife and move to the UK, where I worked out at their global office, setting up their AI department as uh, one of their lead data scientists. So still uh, early days uh, for me and early days for Vodafone. So I had the opportunity to work with some very talented individuals and being a part of building up that team that I think is now over 500 people. Wow. We still, uh, I would say, uh, had set up infrastructure that I had some problems with uh, with today's perspective on-prem, large clusters, distributed computing, and very long lead times actually rolling out models. So I got a little bit of frustrated. I like living in the fast lane, especially when it comes to extracting value. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent about a year and a half in London when I had the opportunity to actually start uh, my own business. So I spent a bit of time, a lot of time in airports, moving back and forth between Sweden and London, uh, servicing clients, primarily banks and startups with AI implementations. But after less than a year, my partner decided to pull out. And my, my good friends at Think Big Analytics, that was purchased by Teradata, gave me a call and asked, why don't you join us uh, now that your partner has pulled out? So I decided to do so. I came in as a director of data science for the Nordics, Eastern Europe and Russia managing a team of 25 people approximately. And what I did was traveling around in this region, advising the, the large corporations on how to implement uh, AI and data. I did so for about a year. Then uh, I get uh, a really interesting phone call from one of the largest companies, not just here in the Nordics, but also in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, H&M Group uh, said, hey, we are investing heavily in AI. We want to build out this internal capability. Can you help us do it? Awesome. And I, 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 at that point, I said, okay, so do you have buy-in from senior stakeholders? Do you have budget? And do you have data? And I got a positive answer to all three of those. And I said, okay, let's do it. And that was two and a half years ago. And I haven't stopped running since. That's fantastic. So for those who may not be familiar with H&M Group, tell us a little bit about the company. So the H&M group, of course, come from the original H&M brand that was started in 1947 here in Sweden uh, in a small town called Westerås. It was a very successful business model in the beginning. The founder, Alin Persson, said he wanted to democratize fashion. Fashion in the pre-war era was relatively expensive. So he basically cut prices and made it available for everyone. In uh, after-war uh, Europe, everybody wanted to kind of get the economy started. So this was a, a spot on. The model was so successful. So in around year 2000, they had 2000 stores when we opened in, in Manhattan. And now today, uh, 20 years later, uh, we have 5000 stores globally. H&M, of course, the group consists of more than the H&M brand, which is very well known for most people. We have other brands like Weekday, Monkey, Another Story, H&M Home, etc. So we as a group, we, we serve all of them. And most of these initiatives are still being centrally managed out of Sweden. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. And you mentioned that you got that call that said that they wanted to invest heavily in AI. 
what stage was H&M at when they gave yeah. that call? <laughs> so, I, I mean, to the listeners um, listening to this, you probably met the, the, the CEOs or the senior managers who says, AI, I've heard about it at a conference somewhere. Uh, what is it? Shouldn't we be investing in it? H&M came to that conclusion in around 2016. That meant that the CEO at the time, Carl Johan Passion, the grandson of the founder, went to business development and he gave that line pretty much. What are we doing within AI? So business development went out into the business and said, we got some bad news. We're not doing much. We do have a CRM department. We, we do have a, some central initiatives here and there, but uh, hey, we're H&M. We're not doing it at scale. Uh, we're not taking advantage of our economy of scale economy we could be doing here. So business development, they engage an external consultancy firm for the first proof of concepts in around 2017 with the aim to go to production if they were good. They were good, their first indicative results. So they went to production. They started seeing payback immediately. The return on investment was less than a year in most of the business cases they, they started. It was so successful. So in 2018, when I got that call, they decided to establish AI as its own function. And a function in H&M is kind of a big deal. The one prior okay. to that is sustainability department. Mm -hmm. And if you know H&M a little bit, sustainability is something very important for us. Then you can imagine how important AI is now. Mm -hmm. So maybe tell us a little bit about the various use cases for AI at H&M. How, how, how do you organize them? What, you know, how do, you, do you think about them by business unit or by functional area? I'm imagining that, uh, or based on our previous conversation, that there's quite broad use at this point. Yeah, so H&M covers the entire value chain of a retail company, except actually manufacturing the clothes. Okay. So for us, AI needs to cover the entire value chain. We have an end-to-end -end responsibility here. So when we started the assessment of what use cases to actually do, we looked on value and feasibility. So we wanted to pick the, the low-hanging fruits first, which uh, was a very good strategy. So we looked on, okay, in the beginning of the, the cycle, before we start manufacturing the clothes, when we actually do the design, can we detect the trends that are going to be interesting, relevant in eight months when we're going to get the clothes back? So we started, one of the use cases was uh, fashion forecasting. Very interesting looking on social media, what are the trends? So our designers could go in with their hypothesis and actually validate them in this tool. Other parts of, of this was, of course, uh, demand forecasting. Mm -hmm. So when we do have some of these things, how much should we buy? That's also very important for us. In the past, uh, when we had hyper growth in the physical retail, we could just say we're going to grow 10% next year. If we didn't reach that target, we could open a new store and put all the, the garments there and just sell them out anyway. Now we needed to be more granular in our predictions. So demand forecasting for the company was, of course, something we focused quite a lot on. Then on the other side, we needed a way to negotiate with different production plans. So we applied AI into different pricing algorithms in negotiations and also vendor selection algorithms for the production part. On top of that, when everything is produced, we needed to allocate them to warehouses. So allocation became a relatively good use case for us as well. What garments should go where and to what store should they get? It's not a one size fits all. It needs to be individual depending on the market as well. And then, of course, in the end of the, the sales cycle, we need to handle pricing. So markdowns for the online store was one of our more successful use cases. And then, of course, covering everything is the personalization, recommendation engines, mm -hmm. and tailored offering for our customers. 
So those were our main relatively high-level use cases that we've been focusing on most recently. Mm -hmm. So you joined H&M at a time where the company had completed several proof-of-concept efforts, had demonstrated some value, I believe didn't have much of a team, relied primarily on external resources at this point. What were your first steps in taking on the challenge to scale this more broadly within the organization? It's a very good question. And I think my my first reaction when joining H&M is what have I given myself into? Uh, (laughs) It was relatively hoarded's nest with some really talented consultants, but they were focused so much on value. And I came in with the perspective, of course, with value, but how do I scale these type of efforts? Mm -hmm. I started thinking, uh, how do we actually recruit the amount of people that we need to recruit to replace these consultants? How do we streamline the technology and architecture? So one of the first things we started doing was communicating a lot more around the topics we were working on to make the market aware of that we were doing these type of investments to be able to to attract talent into some of the very challenging problems we were working on. So we started crafting a a storyline that we wanted to introduce to the general market as well. You should never underestimate communication to create a bit of buzz uh, in the, the, the Nordics because that's primarily where we started out, but also then more globally as well. Then, of course, popping the hood of all the use cases looking at the, the technical architecture, trying to understand what the external consultancy firm had actually built. So some of the first thing I did was uh, going out and hiring more technical people that could understand the, the engineering aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one thing to build a model, but it's another thing to push it to production and keep it there, which requires a lot of engineering effort. So my first hires were some really senior machine learning engineers, and we created something we call a, a reference architecture. Because we wanted to maintain autonomy of the actual data science teams that were building the algorithms and the products to be able to run as fast as possible, but to be able to get as much central support as possible. It didn't make sense for us to make 10 different technical choices when they were trying to solve the same problem. So we started streamlining some of these choices to be able to speed up deliveries, started to to harmonize the, the technical choices. And then, of course, started taking the use case over and rolling them out at a faster pace. At that point, were there existing data scientists within different business units and you were supporting them centrally? Or were you also staffing up across the business in the various business units or or departments? It's a very relevant question. I've seen different companies do it differently. The the Mm H&M approach was to do it centrally from the start basically to incubate the capability rather to spread it out. What we realized and what I realized from from my experience as well is if you put a data science in a team as the only technical and algorithmic person, they're going to have a problem delivering, not because they are bad at delivering, but they're not in the right context. Mm -hmm. So you tend to see a relatively high turnover of data scientists being set as an isolated island in a a business unit. So we decided to initially start with a a central incubation. Okay. When you pull back the covers on these proof of concepts, you were looking for the looking, trying to understand them technically, but what did you also learn from a value perspective? Like often there's misalignment between the needs of a proof of concept, meaning to show something flashy or fancy and 
the ultimate needs of the business and how you align in a, a sustainable long-term way. Did that kind of issue come up for you? I think that one, some of the really good things that with the external firm that we worked with, they were really good at understanding the, the business requirements. So okay. they worked very closely. And I think a strategy from H&M's side, given that they had handed over the technical development to an external firm, was to actually have an integrated person from the business in each use case. So the alignment around value and the delivery of these things, I would say were very well aligned. The, the problems were more on the technical side because showing something shiny doesn't always scale. Mm-hmm. My, my learnings and experiences start with the simplest thing that's better than random that gives some sort of initial uplift, but you can scale it better. Mm-hmm. You don't go with the most complex technology or algorithm from start because you don't know how that will scale. Mm-hmm. So it's better to create a stable and scalable infrastructure rather than focusing on the modeling from day one, if you're serious about these things. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of the things that you built into that infrastructure as you started to pull these projects together? So some of the things that we did is we looked at the process. And what I've realized is if you understand what you're building, then you can map the processes and then you can actually automate most of the things vis-a-vis MLOps uh, type of setup. Mm-hmm. So, so what we did was basically to map out the the development process uh, and look on where are some of the major pain points that we have today. What I started realizing is that we had a lot of stale clusters on the cloud that weren't used 70% of the time. So we started moving over to a more scalable infrastructure. So we moved most of our development away from Jupyter Notebooks into Databricks given that then we could have on-demand compute, that we could have more version control over the infrastructure. So we standardized on how we actually did model development. With those things, we also started looking on the orchestration. So we standardized it a lot around the workflow orchestration, went to going more into airflow, building new pipelines into that things, and also looking on how do we productionalize and how do we follow up on these things. So for each of these process steps, we took a, a few design decisions and created supporting infrastructure for that. Mm-hmm. And then did you go to the actual... Maybe taking a step back, were you building the infrastructure and promoting these proof of concepts into a more production capability at the same time? Or did one come before the other? Did you pause on the POCs, build (laughs) infrastructure, and then return to the POCs to to make them scale? How did you approach uh, all of that? Yeah, I mean, my my general comment is super hard. Uh, (laughs) But it's on the concept of technical depth. So these POCs, some of them were in production already delivering value. And if you have okay. a POC in production delivering value, it's hard to pull back because the business is going to go crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what we started doing was we slowly worked with the different products, identifying their major pain points, gave them boilerplate code uh, to start migrating towards. So some of the engineers, they went in, they did a small proof of concept, for instance, moving into Airflow and Kubernetes in some of the use cases and showed on the benefits. And then we had them pay down the technical debt. In our OKRs, I even formulated goals for the product area to actually handle technical debt in their use cases uh, or product in this case. So we mandated them that not all your efforts should go into new feature development and you roll out to new markets it should be paying down the debt that we still owe on the proof of concepts. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through a particular use case 
before you had this infrastructure and once you established the infrastructure and how that use case evolved along with the platform technologies that you put into place? Yeah, I can tell you about the, the first use case we started as the H&M team, solely based on the reference architecture and how we actually developed that. So we started assortment quantification for online, which is demand forecasting for the online store, mm-hmm. from scratch. So we wanted a green field with all the experience of all the proof of concepts uh, considered in mind based on reference architecture. Basically, what we started, of course, with was creating this blueprint, the reference architecture, and then started building the different building blocks out of that. So from scratch, we, of course, made the modeling on Databricks. We created the airflow orchestration, the integration, the scoring, the hyperparameter tuning, the inference part, and, and all of that. It took end-to-end to build out this infrastructure approximately 12 months. And I'm not going to say this was super fast, but given the complexity and dependencies that we had, and the team was uh, relatively new to building this, I, I think it was relatively good. And were you building the infrastructure for this particular product, or were you building the infrastructure with many products in mind, and this was kind of a tracer bullet? That, that's the, exactly the, the question I wanted to get to. Because we had all the use cases in mind. yeah. So this time, we didn't just build it for one. We built it for many. Got it. And the learning that we made from that is that the second use case that we started, which was the balancing of warehouses, took six months. Mm-hmm. Basically, the same prerequisites. Of course, it's not the same data and the same business output. But the process and everything associated with it is very similar. So we could reuse much of the infrastructure because we built it in such a way. So all of a sudden, we have saved 50% of development time in the new use case. And a new strategic approach is to to even reduce that further with 50% and hopefully getting it down to three months in the the ones that we're starting right now. So we see enormous productivity gain with designing an infrastructure that's reusable rather than building independent use cases at this scale because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You've talked about some of the trade-offs between simplicity and complexity in modeling. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the portfolio looks like from that perspective. What kinds of models are you using and the way you're approaching it today now that you've built some of the infrastructure? So most of the things that we have taken to production the, the last year or so are all relatively simple. Most of our models are like GBM. Like GBM is a sort of a house model these days. I mean, it produces uh, good results and its computational power isn't that expensive. So we get the results that we need. And it's also relatively easy to integrate into the, uh, the use cases and the infrastructure that we have. When we started out and, and some of the consultancy early use cases and some of our early use cases, many of the people uh, in the teams throw themselves directly into the latest research, wanted to do neural networks wanted to get just a 0.1 uplift. But what we realized as well is that this isn't a Kegel competition. It, it is not about optimizing that metrics and that, then you're done. It's about mm-hmm. carrying it over into production, into the infrastructure as well. So, so these days, uh, we tend to start with something relatively simple as a benchmark. It can be anything from, from like EPM, XGBoost, and some other e- regression models for instance. And now we're slowly moving towards more advanced tools. So looking at uh, graph neural networks, et cetera, in our more latest modeling, because we then see an extra need for it. 
So it is a relatively wide range. We have experts in all of these areas. Uh, we have optimization experts as well in some of our use cases. So we try to keep it as simple as possible, but we're not 100% there yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about one of your biggest challenges being scaling your organization from zero to to many employees, data scientists. Do you run into the issue of the folks that you're trying to attract wanting to play with cool, fancy, shiny toys and I hear you're working with XGBoost and LightGBM. Like how do you how have you addressed that? Yeah, it's a it's a super hard. I think it also comes with seniority. And I think it also comes mm-hmm. with establishing different type of teams. What we're seeing is the most valuable thing for us right now when we look on scale are the, the simpler models that they produce a good value and they're easy to maintain and uh, and put into production. But we also have established research teams which have as a purpose to look on how can we improve what we have today? How can we introduce more research into these product teams? Mm. But they have another time perspective. So what we tend to talk to our data scientists and machine learning engineers is that you have to consider timing into this. We have to have a positive ROI in our investment today to actually get the funding to be able to scale this. But at the same time, we are investing in the research, but the research needs to be heavily associated with what you're doing with as well. So we are trying to have a long and a short-term perspective. Can we attract everyone that wants to work with the, the latest and the shiniest thing? Uh, no, of course not. Hopefully we can get some of them uh, and that will be enough. And hopefully one day we are advanced enough so that most of the things we're working on are the latest. But we are a company with a lot of legacy and it's going to take us a bit of time before we are there. Mm-hmm. You just touched on a topic that I hear fairly frequently when talking to folks that are in enterprise leadership positions, and that is the importance of managing the project portfolio, needing to have some kind of swing for the fences, big, big goals in mind to keep executives excited and keep the funding coming in, but also needing to have small wins and pick off low-hanging fruit, that kind of thing. I'm wondering if you see that as well and how you approach that portfolio management aspect of the role. Yeah. I would like to put a little bit more context as well. So we had a major reorganization uh, recently, integration AI with the IT department and business development into one large unit called Business Tech. So these days we are an enabling domain as well which means we serve all of the, the business with enabling capabilities. Okay. Uh, so majority of the use cases actually is prioritized by other units than ourselves these days, and we support them with building them out. This put us in an, uh, a tricky situation trying to identify how should we accelerate AI now, given that we're an enabling domain. So we sat down and we formulated a strategy which we call the Fountainhead, which is the encapsulation of all AI capabilities. So one of the cornerstones of that is going from vertical capabilities, which is basically use case by use case, because we see that's not a scalable business model, into horizontal scaling. Basically, what that does, it gives us another factor of prioritizing. If we in the past prioritized our use cases in our portfolio by value and feasibility, we have now added the notion of reusability. And the notion of reusability basically is because Take the, the move box balancing of warehouses use case that we had. That's in-season demand forecasting. 
If we build it just for Movebox, this is not an infrastructure question, but if you build that specifically demand forecasting just for Movebox, that means that uh, we create it once and we use it once. But if we prioritize our use cases for all the use cases now that can do in-season demand forecasting because we just created that capability and we prioritize them, that means we reach value much faster. So we scale smarter, not harder, by just doing more use cases. So we have flipped the roadmap over in our portfolio of of AI use cases, worked together with the domain and created that type of roadmap to prioritize time to value, which gives us a relatively good ROI quickly within the first year is our estimate, rather than a sequence with small value lumps along the way the next few years. So we we have spent quite a lot of time recently and are seeing the the first uh, results already now. Maybe to replay that a little bit to make sure that I'm catching what you're saying. It sounds like you started out, you had a bunch of proof of concepts, and you built some fairly low-level infrastructure, things like Databricks and Airflow and other things, uh, to enable you to scale those proof of concepts. And more recently, what you're seeing is you're kind of pushing up the level of abstraction. And so you're saying, okay, instead of building out this vertically integrated demand forecasting app for a particular use case, hey, well, we need to do forecasting across lots of different use cases, potentially. Let's build another level of platform kind of at the forecasting level or or the application level the risk of throwing around too many buzzwords here. <laughs> yeah, but, but you're spot on, and that's exactly what we're doing. We increased uh, the abstraction level, so I think that's a very good summary of what we actually are doing, focusing more on the reusability effect, not just on technology, but on the output as well. Mm-hmm. Because we are right now obsessed with scaling the value aspect. I did the math, and it's not complicated. If we are 100 people today, or 120-ish working on the AI use cases, we have around 10 use cases in production right now. If we're going to have all our core operational decisions amplified by AI by 2025, which is our tech leap that we're aiming towards, uh, we're going to need thousands of people if we're scaling it vertically. So we need another way of assessing the the talent gap and the time-to-value assessment as well. Mm Mm-hmm. You mentioned that part of this recent reorg put you in the same organization as IT. I'm curious about the implications of that or the the impacts uh, of that, and how you work together with IT. Is it um, in what ways does it has it impacted your workflow and the way you approach your tasks? Yeah, so I think one of the good decisions that was taken. A few years back was that we were going to start the AI efforts all on cloud with basically no limitations around the the technology. We could pick pretty much whatever we wanted. It was a curse and a blessing. Uh, (laughs) But but if you look on a traditional IT on-prem, traditional waterfall approaches, relatively long cycles, deployments, synchronizations, uh, not so agile. Uh, going into the not new, so agile. <laughs> not so agile. Going into the new business tech organization where we establish around 250 product teams, all supposed to work agile. The IT department coming down from a monolithic type of situation, trying to break that down into product teams, relatively small. Of course, they have a lot of legacy. So we are running really fast. We are able to ship with every delivery. The integration with IT is still relatively few, but 
what we are experiencing now is that we are encountering some of the traditional processes from that type of organization. So I would say it's good for the company because we are getting everybody up to the same standard on how you deliver in a a modern software organization or a modern tech organization. But on our side, of course, the the lead times become a little bit longer when we're trying to to integrate. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're still operating. Well, is AI operating primarily cloud first, but the rest of IT is not primarily cloud first? Is that part of what I'm hearing? Uh, the strategy is cloud first for the company. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the migration takes a, a bit of time for the rest of the organization. So okay. we are 100% cloud first, which makes life a lot of easier. Mm-hmm. And so when you get a proof of concept or a project to production, does that stay within your org for operational responsibility or is there a handoff to... IT, how have you structured around uh, ops long-term? Yes, so so IT doesn't exist any longer as a notion. It's just business tech now. Ah, got it. (laughs) (laughs) But what it is uh, on the ops side is that we have the notion of you run it, you build it. Okay. What what we instead try to do is work together with the domains. So our domains like sourcing and production, customer fulfillment, etc. They are responsible for the actual use case. We are responsible for the capability, the best practice, and the algorithms. So what we do is we work together with the domain. They are going to run the product long term, but we are going to make sure that they have the specialists to solve the problem. So take um, in-season demand forecasting, for instance. We are running the algorithmic, the, the part that actually produces. They will handle the integration and the actual usage of the product. So we can specialize on being specialists in demand forecasting. And they can integrate with the business and the change management and, and run it long term. So it's going to be two product teams working together. Okay. And so does the the business units, it sounds like, have their own technical capability to operate these applications long term, but they rely on business tech as an enabler to help them build in emerging technologies? Is that the idea? Yes. So the business units, they are actually the ones running the business. And then business tech is a traditional old IT organization, but being a more agile organization these days. So we serve the needs of the business units in the group. They don't run, but they use the products that we develop. Okay. So for instance, on the customer side, what we're building now is a, a platform to integrate with H&M.com to make it fully personalized. So we can deploy microservices that can interact and and create a personalized experience. Of course, those that actually are working on the use cases, working with the sales and everything, that's our online sales unit. And that sits in the business units of the H&M brand. And Business Tech is creating the technology to enable them to do their job the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Got it. So in all of this, in your journey there at, at H&M Group, growing the team from zero to, I think you said, 120 employees, you've gone through reorgs and transformations like what are some of your biggest learnings in all that around how to scale an ai team from the start i think one of my biggest learnings is perfection is the enemy of done Mm. i think if you wait around and want to create the best product or want to create the, the best technology you're never going to reach that end state and if you're serious about running fast and scaling then you have to start now. It takes time. Even though we have run extremely fast in the last two and a half years, 
We have just started. We are extracting value. Many of the companies I've worked with and, and seen doing these things, they wait too long. They either want to build a perfect infrastructure, they want to build a perfect model, they want to evaluate, they want to get everybody on board. Of course, stakeholder manage, management is extremely important. Communication is extremely important. But at some point, you just have to say, let's just do it. The, the startup mentality, if there's value on the table, let's go out and get it. Scaling is, is uh, being an entrepreneur, where you start something from, from zero. You have to have a, a bit of guts as well and just uh, go with the notion. Mm-hmm. And just to get tactical on that particular point, often with these machine learning projects in particular, the looming perfection or the small percent of increase in whatever your target metric is, you know, always an, a temptation out there. How do you and your teams stay focused and know when done is? Where in the process do you know that and how do you define it? It's super hard. It's case by case. <laughs> but I, I, at some point, you have to have a baseline, you have to have a target, but it is, like you say in software, ship with every delivery. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is not the research lab. We do have one of those as well, and they have different uh, prerequisites and different targets. What we want to get to here is we want to be able to ship and show something within every sprint. Every PEI needs to be able to ship something. So don't expect to be able to sit and and fiddle around and and try to optimize for too long. And you have to work with your stakeholders as well and agree on a level and have an open dialogue. What we don't want are uh, unicorn data scientists that solves everything themselves. What we want is talented individuals to work together with the team and have a transparent dialogue around their process and what's hard, what's not working, so that everybody can take an informed decision if we should go to production uh, with what they have or if we should wait another sprint. Mm -hmm. You've talked a bit about thinking like a startup entrepreneur. You've mentioned terms that we know from Silicon Valley companies, OKRs and technical debt (laughs) and the like. Clearly, you're trying to operate like a startup within H&M Group. Does that create friction for you in a, a large established enterprise? And, and how have you addressed those kinds of issues if you've encountered them? Definitely. I've seen um, people looking at us and saying, why, why can they do these type of things without actually looking at themselves and, and try it? I think what it comes to is having a good story and communication around these topics. What I try to do in my communication is that I'm doing this for the entire company. This is for, for the better good of this company. It's not for just the, the success of the, the AI department. So the story is really around how we as a company come around. And it's not about threatening other people. It's about amplifying other people to make sure that uh, the people in this organization get to stay away from the, the boring long tail type of problems and get to focus on the really interesting stuff. AI is really good at the long tail type of problems. And let's be humans that can focus on the the creative things, uh, the, the development of the organization and the business. So we try to position ourselves not as a threat, but as an enabler for people in this organization to be their best themselves. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And is part of the way you talk about what your group is doing, do you have like some moonshot project or vision that kind of captures what you're looking to create over the long term? Yeah, I think it goes back to the tech leap we want to do. We want to have all core operational decisions amplified by AI by 2025. Mm -hmm. That's 
where we want to be. Uh, and I think it's possible with the strategy that we have created. And I truly believe that uh, if we're able to onboard more resources and talent and grow in the place we want to do, <laughs> we will be able to transform this company to uh, a truly an AI first type of company. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Errol, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thank you so much. Simon. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.